Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. This is Zach Bogalki. Today we're going to be talking about amateurism, both in terms of professional leagues that are starting up around the country and the recent grant and aid lawsuit ruling that came out on Friday. We're going to be talking about Florida-Miami moving up in the schedule and uh, how it affects both future scheduling, how this might set new precedent for other schools, and what it might mean for greater flexibility in the future. And then John and I are going to talk about the three worst losses we have ever endured as college football fans ourselves. Because first and foremost, while we are writers and while we are podcasters, we are fans of the game. So welcome today, John. It's great to be here to talk in football with you. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here, uh, as always, talking college football with you. A lot, of, a lot of fun topics this week, and one maybe that's not so fun, but uh, you know, the best way to, to get over something, I guess, is to confront it head on, and uh, some, of those, some of those losses you just never actually get over, and um, we'll get into that more later, but they're, they're some heartbreakers. They really are. So yeah, the first thing we're going to dive in today is um, looking at amateurism. And obviously, you know, the most recent court ruling that came out on Friday uh, from U.S. District Judge Claudia Wilkin really highlighted the fact that while uh, the grant and aid, you know, lawsuit was a victory first and foremost for the players, it didn't do anything to strike down amateurism itself. And, you know, also looking at that in the context of the Alliance of American Football and the upcoming XFL and even uh, the Pacific Pro Football League that's also looking to start up soon, we see um, the confluence of a lot of different issues that really confront amateurism head on. John, especially uh, in uh, the fa- given the fact that you wrote an article looking at you know the AAF and the XFL recently, how do you think these pro leagues might affect um, college football moving down the line? You know, it, it's something that could be really, really interesting soon. The the AAF um, is kind of trying to be the feeder league for the NFL, as you probably already know. That's their main goal is they want to be the minor league system for the NFL. So currently, as constructed, their um, eligibility model is the same as the NFL. So you got to be three years removed from high school to be able to jump into the NFL or into the AAF, just like you would for the NFL. But the column that I wrote and um, really focused on what could happen with with the AAF or maybe even more specifically the XFL when they uh, come about again in 2020, what could happen if they decide to completely flip that? What if the AAF or the XFL decided to take kids one year removed from high school uh, right after their freshman year of college or maybe just right out of high school? You know, and the and the big thing there and the big thing that's been talked about by a lot of people so far this offseason is Trevor Lawrence, uh, the Clemson quarterback who, you know, is the wonder kind quarterback for Clemson, first freshman quarterback to win a nat- start and win a national championship since Jamel Holloway in the 80s for Oklahoma. Um, he's got nothing left to prove at this level. I think he proved everything he's got to prove in college is even if you just took the one game, if you just watched the oh, national yeah. championship game and watched him eviscerate a Nick Saban defense, that's really all he had to prove was right then and there. 
And I think he's the presumptive, currently the presumptive number one overall pick in 2021. And you're going to see teams in the NFL potentially even tanking for 2021 already because they want a piece of Trevor Lawrence. So what happens if the XFL, because Vince McMahon's already come out and said he's not going to have, have the XFL be constrained by the same eligibility model as the NFL. So what if they come out and their first big thing is they offer a big million-dollar contract or something like that to Trevor Lawrence, and what if he decided to move, and then what would kind of be the domino effect from there? Yeah, well, and I think that's a really a great thing to bring up. Um, you know, Don Yee, who's you know Tom Brady's agent, but he's also looking at founding the Pacific Pro Football League, he's talked about also wanting to go at Trevor Lawrence. You know, they're looking at um, eligibility requirements that would allow for that to happen as well. And so, you know, the notion that that players could be coming out earlier is it, it really ought to scare the pants right off of the NCAA. It, like, it, you know, it, it ought to send their hair on edge and just have them absolutely freaked out and justifiably so. Um, obviously, um, you know, with the court ruling as well recently sort of, uh, you know, striking down a lot of what the NCAA does in terms of, you know, artificially restricting what conferences and schools can, you know, set as their own personal limits for, for grant and aid to players and, you know, what constitutes a stain against amateurism versus what is legitimate payments it, it, you know, the fact that they have the injunction against them now that doesn't even allow them to make these decisions, but now puts it in the hand of the individual conferences. We're really starting to see, a, you know, a lot of different things in play there that could could go in a lot of different directions. But I think all of them really, you know, turn back on the NCAA. Really, the only thing that that was, you know, the best thing that could have possibly come out of this this lawsuit, though, for them is amateurism is still in place. The fact is the NCAA and its member institutions still get to completely define what constitutes amateurism. And until, you know, even the players have a voice at the table to say what's going to happen there, it, it, the real avenue for breaking forward and allowing, you know, players to really have agency over their their budding careers is going to be one of these pro leagues actually stepping up to the plate and beginning to pick off these kids. And you're starting to see uh, more and more now moving toward some big change with the NCAA down the road, because this isn't something when I first started watching college football or any collegiate sport that really was in the forefront. Nobody really talked about it that much. I believe Maurice Claret in 2002 really kicked off that story um, when he tried to jump straight from the pros after his freshman season at Ohio State when they won the national championship. He tried to jump straight to the pros after his freshman year. And that kind of, I think, and I'm sure there's been some cases before that, but for me, that was my first really run-in with it. I had never even thought about the fact that these kids could rise up and challenge the system. And I, to me, he was kind of the pioneer of that. And I think, I mean, it's brewing with something. I don't know what it's going to be. And I don't Trevor Lawrence is the the litmus test, I guess. He's the main guy you think of just because he's probably – him and Alabama's Tua Tungvaluwa are probably college football's two biggest stars at the moment. So they would be the big box office gets. In my column I talked about, imagine the AAF kicking off this year and season opener, they could – 
have Trevor Lawrence versus Tua Tungavailoa one-on-one right after the national championship game two months later, them going one-on-one against each other again, you know, and imagine the ratings that would pull. That would oh, – that's yeah. the thing for the AAF too is that brings in more revenue because ESPN, ABC, CBS, they're going to be all – well, ESPN and ABC are the same, but CBS, Fox, all that, they're going to be competing hard to try to get the TV rights for that game because that would be a huge ticket, right? I mean we're talking a couple months after the national title game. These guys are squaring off to open up a new league. I mean I oh, think yeah. we're years away from something like that happening. But I think the conversation is starting to get louder and louder and louder. Well, yeah, and it's like you said a little bit earlier. Trevor Lawrence has nothing to prove. The only thing that Trevor Lawrence can do is knock his draft stock down. Yeah, suffer a devastating knee injury and ruin his entire career. That's it. it. Exactly. There, you know, there is no outcome that can become more positive than what is already there on his plate. And yes, you know, he could go to one of these you know, smaller pro leagues that's building up and he could get injured there as well. Like let, let, let's be dead serious about it. Football is football. And at whatever level you're playing at, you're, you're risking your body. People are risking their body for our entertainment. That's just straight up what it is. It's modern day gladiators. Yeah. Yeah. And given that, and given the fact that these players know the risks they're taking on um, and and understand the value that they bring to the table as well. They understand that they're not just playing a sport that could beat up their bodies, but they're playing a really popular sport that could beat up their bodies. There's no legitimate reason why um, things can't and you know won't change in the future. Uh, yeah. Well, and the argument that there's not enough money, too, has always just been ridiculous. When you look at just the exuberant things that these institutions spend money on these days, these monstrosities of athletic department buildings and stuff like that that go up constantly at bigger programs. I know you lived in Eugene for a while, so you saw firsthand what happened at Oregon. Oh, man. I lived in Tuscaloosa for a while, so with Nick Saban coming in down there, just the massive changes. And to me, it's always felt like, hey, we've got all this extra money. We don't really know what to do with it, so we're just going to keep building crazy things because you know we've got to show it off. Instead, you know, some of that money could be earmarked towards the players. And I don't know what the perfect system is for there, but they're the ones producing. Uh, you know, obviously yeah. the brands make a big difference. People are going to watch Alabama football. People are going to watch Oregon football and stuff, regardless of who's wearing the jerseys and helmets and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, eventually something's got to give, and you got to figure that they, they're they the ones producing the, the money. Yeah. They're People are making money on their likeness and stuff like that. Really, Zach, selfishly, the one thing I want to come out of all this is I want to play NCAA football on my PlayStation again. Oh, That's really man. the thing I want to do. <laughs> I I do miss that dearly. Um, I don't think I've had a, a video game console of any type since those games went out of went out of publication. Like honestly, I paid eighty dollars for a PS4 or yeah, PS4 copy. I know an Xbox 360 copy of uh, NCAA 14 like a year and a half ago just because I missed the game so much. And there's a subsection of the internet. If I remembered their name, I would shout them out on the podcast. They're keeping the game alive because you can download updated rosters and stuff like that. The only thing that sucks about it is there's no college football playoff because this was the the <laughs> last year before the playoff. So it's still the I, old that, BCS system. But, it's right. you know, it's better than nothing. 
No, exactly. And it, it really lets you live that moment in time. You know, for all the ills of the BCS, it, it brought things forward. Um, but, you know, yeah. I, I don't think that's, you know, either here, neither here nor there. Um, and I think, you know, just to really kind of touch back to the point you just made, these schools aren't going to go out of operation if they start paying players. Um, you know, they're not going to go, coaches aren't going to leave their jobs if players start getting some money. You know, pro players aren't, don't lead to pro coaches leaving their jobs. You know, so you're calling Dabo Sweeney's bluff is what you're saying. You know exactly. Whole, I'll find something else to do if we start paying players. You knew exactly what I was talking about for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I figured I'd try to be uh, dance around it. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Dabo wants to talk about quitting his job if players ever get paid. That is not going to happen. And you, you, know, you also brought up the fact that uh, the money's there. I did a column, my Sunday morning quarterback column, a couple of weeks after the national title game. It was sometime in January, um, but really looked at the fact that what surplus value is there. You know, if we're going to look at at this from a purely economic construct, even after you take out, you know, coaches' salaries and the infrastructure that they spend on and the operating expenses that go into travel and, and you know, gear and all of that. Even, you know, group of five programs have a base. I think the lowest was like somewhere around like it was for like Miami of Ohio or another one of those max schools. And they're still pulling in surplus value of 50,000 per player. And when you account for more than 100 players on a, a total roster, you know, like even if you just count 85 scholarship players, that's accounting for millions that are just sitting there on the table not being given to the people who are actually producing it yeah absolutely and that's um that's the root of the issue right is there's there's value in what these players are doing they're playing a very dangerous game that's proven that that it can kill you not just injuries like you know your back's gonna hurt your um you're not gonna be able to been down and touch your toes or whatever when you're old this game can kill you i mean you have cases of cte and stuff like that that have popped up with older football players not even old football players middle-aged football players and stuff so i mean that's that's the thing and the aaf doesn't pay a ton but uh, their their deal for everybody is two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a three-year contract but i mean that's still a lot of money if someone if i was coming out of high school and someone offered me a three-year deal for 250k i'd have snatched it out of their hand it's just in a heartbeat yeah yeah, so I mean, it's not a ton of money, and I don't think you're going to see a mass wave of college football players departing early to go to the AAF or the XFL or or whatever other league that spins off and pops up down the line. But it gives it gives another avenue, it gives another option. You're still going to have college football is still going to be college football. People love college football because they love watching their schools play. Just mm-hmm. as the same as on Friday nights around the country, you can go and watch a high school game with thousands of people. Because it's, you know, their school and there's a sense of pride that comes in cheering on your own school. Yeah, well, it's pride. It's, you know, it's one of the last places where groups of wildly different ideology and wildly different political persuasions and, you know, different religious beliefs. It's where an entire community can come together as one. 
and, and they can all come together and yell at the refs together. Exactly. You have a common, you know, for better lack of word, you have a common enemy. And honestly, that <laughs> unites people better than a lot of things in this world. Like, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's a really powerful force. And I think with this, you know, I, I keep coming back to this court ruling because it's really just sitting in my head just because it's so fresh. And the fact is, is because this injunction is in place for the NCAA to no longer control what grant and aid means and what those limitations are, each conference is going to get to set those for themselves. I think that could be a really fascinating thing in terms of what it means for players because, um, you know, the one sort of restriction that's, that kept amateurism in place is that these have to be education-related expenses. And, you know, I'm using – if you could see me, I'm using big <laughs> scare quotes right now because each conference is going to get to determine for itself what constitutes – education-related expenses. Obviously, you know, scholarship, room, board, books, that all fits into the, you know, what's currently allowed for. But you're also going to see, you know, additional meals to make sure that you have the, you know, that you're, you have enough nutrition in place to not just fuel it on the field, but to fuel your mind in the classroom. You're going to see, you know, I've seen suggestions coming out of this that this could amount to pay based on grades, you know, linking it to grades or linking it to if you decide to do a double major or if you get through your undergraduate in less than the four years and start going on to a grad degree. It, it, there's even something as simple as like you can have brand a brand new computer every year or brand new, you know, like whatever class you're taking, if you need, you know, specific technology for that, it can, it, that also is on the table as something to be paid for. Um, something like study abroad programs in the summertime. And on, on one hand, you know, this court ruling was technically a win for the players. And in a lot of ways, it could still be a win for the players, but really what it feels like it's designed to do more than anything is pivot this less from recognizing them as laborers and really trying to refocus it on them being students, which, you know, isn't to say it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's college football is college football because there's a college attached to it. Right. Um, but the thing is, is not everybody wants to, wants to go to school. I know when I was 19 – you know, there's a reason I took 10 years off between my <laughs> freshman year and my sophomore year of my undergraduate studies. At 19, a lot of the times you're burned out from high school. You're done with it. You don't want to be in classes. You're going to college for, you know, these kids are going to college primarily for football in a lot of cases. And, you know, yeah. their secondary interests are are partying and you know, um, that's a primary interest. Yeah. Well, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Um, you know, it's a primary interest outside of the scholarship that you're forced to, you know, play for. Um, but yeah, exactly. And you know, your tertiary or, or quaternary interests are down there in terms of the classroom and actually doing your homework. That wasn't there for me at 19. Like it really took going back to school at 29 to have that. 
And so, you know, maybe this also includes unlimited scholarship opportunities for coming back to school, like not necessarily recognizing that these kids are in a sport that requires you to be playing for, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a full-time job. Like We've discussed that before. Like Playing college football is a full-time job. You know, And I think you touched on something that was pretty interesting a second ago is all the different stuff that, that ruling could mean. And you know these big-time college football coaches are going to try to bend it, work around it, and take full advantage of it to help with recruiting and everything like that. So those things are only going to keep going up and up because you know a guy like Nick Saban is going to see that and be like, well, what if we did this? That's within the rules. You know, that's how they ended up with so many analysts and stuff on the football staff yeah. that everyone always likes to comment on. And then they, the NCAA took away a, a couple years ago. They were bringing back former players to run scout team, like yep. they were Blake Sims and people like that were coming back to run scout team quarterback and stuff. And the NCAA did away with that. So these coaches especially the big-time coaches, are going to look for every single competitive advantage they have. And maybe this is something uh, that could be that, and I guess we'll find that out you oh, know, yeah. soon enough. Oh, yeah. I just think of, like, Eric Dickerson's gold Trans Am back in the day. I have a feeling that we're <laughs> going to see, like, you know, a new athletic housing is built, you know, a little bit further away from campus just so you can justify giving every one of these guys a new car. You know, there's there's going to be bending of this, but, you know, they have to be a little bit further away from campus because they're celebrities. They, you know, they get distracted when they're on campus. We don't want them being distracted, but they're not. That's the point of that. But not not distracted from their job, distracted from, you know, the coursework they need to get. done. Sure. But that's the point of that, too. Like you said, like they are celebrities. Like if you live in a college town and you see these guys walking around, I mean, they are as well known as and more well known, honestly, than most professional football players, because there's a ton of people specifically in states like Alabama, where I live. There's no professional football team. I mean, yeah. there is now with the Birmingham Iron of the AAF, but there's no NFL team here. There's no professional sports franchise here. Yeah. Uh, so people who play at Alabama, I mean, those guys, when they're in school, it's like those are the biggest celebrities really in the state they're the most well-known people in the entire state yep and that and that's there's value in that yeah no and and, you know i look back on my two years as a teaching assistant in eugene while i was finishing out my master's degree there and i definitely taught classes i taught discussion sections with football players from the team you know i'm not going to name names here because that wasn't the the nature of the job but it's really interesting to see them trying to get on is just to be honest, like seeing them in that environment humanizes them. These are kids. They're, they're 19, 20 year olds who were just as confused about what they really want to be doing with their life as I was at 19, 20 years old. And, and recognizing that and, you know, but not patronizing it, I think is the other part of it because you can say, well, they're 19, 20 years old. They ought to be doing this for the thrill of it or the pleasure of it. I wrote for the campus newspaper when I first came back to school. I was still at Portland State then, so I was writing about FCS football, um, which is a obviously a completely different beast. Those kids are on oftentimes partial scholarships, and, and it was very much a different environment than you would see in Oregon. You know, they're not building up huge facilities at that level and you don't have giant coaching staffs and they were actually approachable and I didn't have to go through the, 
you know, the information director to get to them. You could just catch them walking off the field. That said, I did that job because I loved it, because I love writing, because I was interested in possibly pursuing long-term avenues in journalism and print journalism specifically. I got paid for it, though. Like, this wasn't something where I was doing it for the love of it. I, I, you know, and the fact that I got paid for, you know, my 600 words per column didn't meet, you know, didn't delegitimize that effort. It didn't, it wasn't like the faculty representative for the newspaper was, saw it as less than because we got some money for doing work. As, you know, as as Dabo wants to say would be the case. And, and, you know, to be fair, let's not just single out Dabo. It's pretty much, it's pretty much every college. Okay. Not everyone either, but (laughs) the majority I would say are probably fall somewhere on that side of the spectrum. And frankly, that's, that's bull. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you, you talked about getting paid and stuff because, I mean, athletics and the NCAA and playing college sports, that's the only thing in college where you can't also get paid because these guys aren't allowed to have jobs and stuff either. And even if they were allowed, they don't have time. I mean, oh, yeah. even when the off season, I mean, the season's been over for, you know, it ended in January for uh, most teams or late December. Spring practice has already started. And before yep. spring practice, there was – uh, voluntary workouts, as I throw the air quotes out there, voluntary to the point that, hey, if you don't show up, you're fourth string beginning spring exactly. practice. So, I mean, there's no time for that because they're going to work out. Spring practice starts, and I mean, I, I use Alabama as an example a lot just because that's my forte. That's where I live. That's the one I follow the most. They started spring practice on Friday right before spring break. They'll take spring break off and then get right back into it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they're working out. It's just like the season's going right now. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there's no time for any of that. But any, any other endeavor, uh, even writing about these players who, you know, if they weren't doing what they're doing, we wouldn't have jobs yeah. to make money off of them. And, you know, you know, it is what it is, I guess. But I, this is a conversation that we could talk about for – hours and hours and get heated up about for hours and hours and it's it's stuff we've talked about a million times in the past and i'm sure there'll be more and more stuff down the road like i said i think it's moving in the in the right direction oh yeah and i i yeah i don't think we need to beat this drum too much lot more loudly at least here right now i i think we we got that point across but i think it's really interesting and before we take a quick break um i just want to um touch on the fact that you talked about the schedule moving more and more so that there's really no like real off season for these players. And our next topic really speaks to that as well. The fact that um, the schedule might be, you know, moving up for more teams more frequently based around the, the recent Miami Florida game moving up. Um, So we'll talk about that more in just a second. All right, everybody, we're back after that quick break, Um, and we just finished talking about amateurism and left off looking at the fact that players are already into spring practices. Um, Another thing I think, or the next topic we were going to go into today is looking at the schedule pushing up from the opposite direction, Uh, specifically around the fact that the NCAA recently just granted... uh, 
Miami and Florida permission to move up their season opening uh, state rivalry game one week from August 31st to August 24th on the schedule. Um, this game really, you know, sort of speaks to the wave of kickoff classics that we saw take up, you know, rise in the 80s and early 90s and, you know, play out through the beginning of the 21st century until until we, you know, every team was allowed a 12th game. So what this isn't going to do is necessarily, you know, knock in a 13th game or something. It's not like they're giving them an extra game. But I think what's really most interesting about this is just the, you know, the fact that one, it's bringing players onto the field earlier. They're going to have to come back for, you know, preseason a little bit earlier. The summer gets truncated. But also, um, on the other hand, it does build in more flexibility into the schedule where we've seen, especially for schools like Florida and Miami that have faced issues with actual hurricanes running through the state rather than just the, you know, canes of the U. Yeah, they didn't run through anybody last season. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I think I, I really wanted to gauge your thoughts this week, John. What do you think about, um, you know, this move could mean in a broader context for, for scheduling moving forward for schools? You know, it's something that's been on my mind for all last season. It's something I really want to focus on this season is keeping up. Because I don't know if it was just me, but I don't think it was. I talked to several people during the season last year. It felt like there was a lot of weather delays last season, right? Like more so than than typical. It felt like every weekend there was, even if games weren't being canceled, and we had the mass cancellation of games this year, but even in the ones that weren't being canceled, there was hour, two-hour delays. It felt like every week, five or six games, and it just felt like something that, is beginning to actually become an actual issue. And we saw, for the first time I can remember, a bowl game got canceled yeah. uh, due to inclement weather this year. The Serve Pro, um, mm-hmm. was it the Texas Bowl? Yes. Or, yeah, the Serve, no, I knew Serve no, Pro was the sponsor. Was it the Texas Bowl or the Heart of Dallas Bowl? I that think. was it. Yeah, that the was Heart, it. Of Dallas. Heart of Dallas Bowl. Yeah. yeah the they're, they're the I just remember Serve Pro was a sponsor because yep. all the memes got off on Twitter that were pretty funny about it because yeah. they had the – their tagline or whatever is like it never even happened. Yep, <laughs> which is pretty funny for a bowl game that you know actually never didn't even happen. happened. <laughs> so no, the interesting thing, and like you were talking about adding flexibility into the schedule, is you know, and we're not going to get too deep into climate change and stuff like that, but it is a concern because there's a rise in in these super storms and hurricanes and tornadic weather and everything like that that keeps getting worse and worse every year so oh yeah you know if you move the schedule up a week um to the next to last week of august i guess now at least for florida and miami and a few other games you know you get more flexibility in the schedule because there's a double bye week and more so than that just there being flexibility because now if there's a cancellation it's easier to reschedule that's also a good player safety thing right because there's an extra week off during the season for players to nurse all these nagging injuries and that's another you know whole nother we already hit on a lot of that with the amateurism talk with the injuries and stuff but you know all these nagging injuries and stuff gives them another week to heal and i I think for a player safety thing it could be really good Um, i think for a flexibility thing in the schedule it could be really good and my you know my only real concern is in moving it up in august specifically is you know it's really hot in august and you see you see players falling out during spring or not during spring but during the summer um practices and stuff leading up into the season uh you see fans passing out in stands when it's 100 plus degrees and that would be the one concern and 
Yeah, that, and and that's not the case just in you know the southeast, for instance, or in the southern states. Games were miserable at aughts in those first weeks of the year. Oftentimes, you know, there were part of the reason they schedule that that FCS, you know, um, paycheck game is is not just because you know you need a warm up game for the team, but the fact is, you know, fans are going to be leaving. Like fans just aren't going to sit there in the heat. And so you give them the thrill of getting to watch a quick blowout by halftime. They're back in their cars, you know, and a lot of them are beginning to leave the stadium and you know, that's going to happen. So you might as well not schedule your best games in those weeks. I think that's another thing with the kickoff classics too. And that's a big selling point for places like Atlanta and Dallas that have the dome stadiums for the opening week is, you know, you get in there and you've got the temperature controlled 70 degrees or whatever it is inside those stadiums. So that's another um, selling point for those kind of stadiums too. Yeah. And I could see a proliferation of that even in, you know, that's often been traditionally the, you know, held in those Southern cities. But the fact is, is you've got just as many domes in Northern cities, you know, seeing it in a Minneapolis or a Detroit, you know, some of those places are, could start to see more of these games come up as well. And I think that would be a good thing. One, just to sort of re-nationalize the sport. The fact that a lot of these games get played in the South is, you know, it, it really drives the fact that, you know, demographically, this has been more of a Southern sport and is increasingly becoming so just with the shift in demographics to the Sunbelt states and, you know, the growth of population in those cities and the fact that so many of your blue chip players are coming from those areas as well. Um, but at the same time, I think really just reiterating that that nationwide love of the sport, I, you know, I think as somebody who who was born in Wisconsin and still has family back there, it was a really unique thing to see, for instance, LSU and Wisconsin play at Lambeau Field. Like, that's something that, that college football could really embrace more. And, you know, especially if we're worried about temperature, like even moving it to some of these more northern states where, you know, even though it's still hot, it might be 10 degrees lower in temperature than, than you know, in a Tuscaloosa. So... Yeah, and it's not maybe not as humid and stuff like that, so you can barely breathe outside. By the way, quick aside, I didn't know what humidity was until I flew to Seattle, Washington mm. uh, when I was in high school from Atlanta. I didn't really realize that God, I always lived in humidity. I'd never really been outside of the South, so I didn't really realize what it was until I flew back in from Seattle <laughs> to Atlanta and could not breathe when I stepped off the plane. Literally was gasping for air. So humidity sucks. I just want yeah. to put that out there. Yeah, I think the the first time I really encountered that was when I went to Oklahoma City for a national debate tournament in high school and, you know, got showered, got dressed up in a suit for the day. And within five minutes, I felt like I needed to take another shower. You know, right. that's something that I would have never encountered during my childhood in Wyoming, you know, living up at 7,000 feet in the mountains, you don't right. deal with humidity like that at all. <laughs> so I, <laughs> no, to- I totally get what you're talking about there. It's, it, it is something real to consider in terms of, you know, we're, we're talking about player safety on one side. And I think oftentimes, you know, looking at something that could be really beneficial, at least in some ways from a player safety standpoint can backfire and, 
be less beneficial in other ways. It's a yeah. There's there's not a perfect solution out there for sure when it comes to that, but there's got to be something. I think you got to do something. I think the double bye week is the biggest thing for that because of the schedule flexibility and because of player safety and giving them the extra week off during the season. I think it's something, you know, Florida and Miami might be looked back on as the kind of the pioneers of the schedule movement down the line. And I know they were doing it because it gives them the headline game of the opening weekend of college football, whereas they wouldn't have been the absolute headline game. And speaking of, it's great seeing Miami and Florida play again, by the way, because they, yeah. they should play every year. When I was a kid, that was one of my favorite games to watch yeah. every year. And maybe these aren't – this isn't Steve Spurrier, Florida anymore, uh, although Dan Mullen's got the ball rolling well there. And this isn't um, late 90s, early 2000s Miami either. But those are you know traditional rivals that you think of when you think of college football. So oh, it'll yeah. be a lot of fun to see them it, lock horns on the gridiron again. Yeah, the fact that it's been six years since they played is – really kind of astounding it it really is i mean it it's one of those things where it's not even realignment that knocked it out i mean we had enough you know great rivalry games die you know with realignment texas texas a&m you know that rivalry dying out completely i think about the border war between kansas and missouri um, games like that are, are part of what make college football great and i agree with you that this miami florida game it's it's ridiculous that it hasn't been played since 2013. So, you know, I, I think it's really wonderful that it is getting that, that headline position that it deserves. And I think like we've said already, it also has the power to, to make wider changes within college football. It's something too, Zach, that, you know, a lot of people don't want to see the playoff expanded uh, mm-hmm. further than it already is. But if you do expand the playoff, you get more of these games because a lot of scheduling stuff happens because teams are afraid to take on too many tough games during the season because yeah. one loss can completely ruin your year in college football. And I mean, usually you can withstand one loss if you're in a tough conference and you're deemed to have played a tough schedule. But if you you know move it to eight, 16 teams, you'll get to see a lot of these games during the regular season because there's no benefit in not. You'd want to test yourself heading into this playoff gauntlet at the end of the season. So there'd be no reason to play a bunch of, you know, FCS schools and, uh, stuff like that during the year, you'd have more incentive to play more Power Five games and stuff for the bigger schools. You'd get more Florida Miamis. You'd get more Texas Texas A and M's. So I haven't always been the biggest proponent of that. But in terms of uh, stuff for the fans and getting to see the best product on the field every Saturday, that's something that's really rarely talked about. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned having fewer of those those FCS games, the cupcake games or the paycheck games, whatever you want to call them. On one hand, is somebody who likes smaller schools and getting to see them play the big guys. And the fact is, you know, they need those paychecks. They're paycheck games for a reason to to keep their entire departments afloat. So I don't necessarily want to see those go completely away. But I, I totally get what you're talking about in terms of really these sorts of marquee matchups. Uh, they fuel college football. They are the glue that keeps it together. And especially with these games that are, you know, interconference games. They're not just, you know, conference rivalries, but we get these really big, you know, state rivalries or, you know, border rivalries. They, they have an impact, and that's what really allows fanaticism to thrive. 
I, I, you know, I'd love to see, see more of those. And I think, you know, we, we were talking about the player safety thing. I think sort of a good compromise solution might be, you know, the flexibility for, you know, maybe it's Southern teams playing more games, you know, that second week of December or, you know, Heisman week when, you know, normally it's just Army Navy getting their sole place on the schedule. And, you know, while the pageantry of that is great, how, you can't just consider one game in the equation when so many players could benefit from having, you know, more rest time during the course of that fall term, you know, because when your body hurts, it's a lot harder to think about school. I never played college football, but, you know, all through middle school and high school, I played in a broomball league back in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And when you're trying to take notes and like, you've got, sprained fingers and jam fingers, even just something like that, trying to write with your hands beat up. It's misery. Oh yeah. yeah, Absolutely. And, um, neither of us had the makings of varsity athletes stealing a line from junior on the Sopranos, but uh, we, we, uh, we have the makings of people who are good at talking about that kind of stuff, I reckon. So, um, but yeah, I think that's, that's really it with that. I think you jumped into, we were starting to talk about, the, the fan aspect of, of college football, and I think that would be a good way to kind of springboard into our next topic after after another quick break. All right, and we're back, and uh, now we're going to talk about something that's uh, probably going to be tough for both of us to talk about and be tough for any fan to talk about. Uh, I, I was talking to Zach the other day about this, potentially talking about this on the podcast, because uh, I was watching a, a Netflix documentary series uh, called Losers, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about some famous uh, losses in, in sports, a lot of individual sports, uh, not necessarily football. I've only watched the first four episodes, but it's been really, really good and kind of kind of how these players have dealt with with losing because you always see the the good side of sports is the celebrations the confetti falling on the heads of players who were crying tears of joy for having accomplished and climbed the the summit of their sport on the other end of that though is the people who were having the confetti fall on their heads and they're crying tears of sadness because yep. of just got ripped out of their chest you oh, know boy. so obviously that's tough for the players but as fans it's it's really really tough too um and I think if you talk to any fan, uh, there's going to be a loss or losses that really sticks out in your mind. And as much as it sucks, it's important because without feeling the agony of defeat, victory wouldn't taste the sweet, right? Oh, yeah. It, 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 I, I definitely live by that old wide world of sports line, especially as somebody who grew up in the snow, seeing the ski jumper fall off the ramp uh, really resonated with me. And, I, you know, I just like any other fan, I certainly have those moments that, oh God, I hate to say it, but you know, 20 plus years later, they're still stinging for me. <laughs> and I think that's true of all fans. I think that's why this was a topic that, that we both thought, well, it, it, it's going to be a little bit cathartic, hopefully, and it's going to be a little bit painful definitely call it a necessary purging you know we get it out there we get that pain out there we're going to use this as the first saturday blitz therapy session exactly i think that's a good way to put it so yeah um you know after john brought this up for me he you know said start thinking about your worst losses and it's funny he said you know 
I bet you can, you know, like guess what mine was. And immediately the first thing that popped to mind for me, knowing John, is the the Alabama Auburn kick six iron bowl. That was uh I know one that, that really hurt for him. How'd that hit you, John? Well, it still hits because you literally can't watch uh, a highlight package or anything, a lead-in to a, to a football broadcast or anything without getting to see Chris Davis running 100 yards down the sideline to, to win the most improbable freaking Iron Bowl I've ever seen in my entire life. So to kind of take you inside my psyche, I guess, on that, I was at my uncle's house uh, typically um, when I'm in town, and I live relatively close to him now, but I used to live, like I said, in Tuscaloosa, so he lives – far away from Tuscaloosa, doesn't matter, close to where I live now. Um, and we'll go up there and we'll watch football on Saturday with him. He's a huge Alabama fan, has been forever. I'm a member of the secret Red Elephant Club that controls everything according to LSU truthers out there. Um, but uh, he, we go up there and we're watching the game. And I mean this – a lot of people don't remember a, a lot about this Iron Bowl except the ending, but – this is the era of Alabama where they felt invincible. And yeah. I mean, it's stupid to say that now because they, everybody thinks they're always invincible. But this is Alabama 2013 coming off back-to-back national championships. Yep. They literally had not lost a game of consequence since 2010 because they rebounded in 11 from losing to LSU, uh, getting the rematch and throttling them mm-hmm. in the national championship game. Lost to Texas A&M in 2012. Ended up still getting into the title game and beating Notre Dame. So this was the first game of consequence that really knocked them out of the SEC championship, national championship race in three years. You know, it had been that long since they had lost the game of consequence, and it didn't feel like they would ever lose again. Yeah. And that's kind of the feeling I had going into that game. And, you know, there should have been there should have been it should have been in my mind that something weird was going to happen because that Auburn team felt blessed from above in two oh weeks prior <laughs> two weeks prior to that game if everybody remembers they hit a hail mary on fourth and 19 or something to beat georgia yep. to even make that game consequence if that doesn't happen the iron bowl doesn't matter that year because alabama would have already clinched the sec west a loss to auburn probably doesn't knock them out of the race because that auburn team ended up making it to the national championship so if alabama goes and beats missouri just like auburn does they probably play florida state at the rose bowl for the title that year too. exactly so so we're watching and there's nothing good that ever happens when alabama trots a field goal kicker onto the field particularly in a clutch situation um really i mean just looking at the up. national title game from 2017 against georgia if tua tungavailoa doesn't throw that miraculous touchdown pass everybody would be remembering the fact that Andy Papanastas missed a 36-yard field goal by about 36 yards. Yeah. Oh, that was ugly. That's the kind of stuff. But I think this was the game that really brought that to the forefront. It's hard to blame the kicker in this situation because it was a 57-yard attempt. Yeah. And backtracking just a little bit on that, they had put one second back on the clock. The, the play before that, I don't know if you remember. I, I don't remember That's the right. player. I think maybe it was TJ Yeldon had called a pass and was going out of bounds. And initially the clock had expired and we had, were heading to overtime. But yeah, they reviewed it. Right. looked like there was a second left, brought it back out. Um, so Adam Griffith comes back out onto the field to attempt a 57-yard field goal. Auburn's got a player back. That's not even resonating with me. I'm thinking worst-case scenario, well, obviously he's going to miss the field goal. We're going to go to overtime, and the way that this game has gone here at the end, we're probably going to lose, and it's going to suck really bad. 
Yeah. Boy, was I ignorant to how bad it would suck. Because <laughs> then Griffith boots it up. It's woefully short. Alabama's got, I believe, seven linemen on the field. No one that was anywhere close to as fast as Chris Davis, who runs down the sideline all the way for 100 and whatever yards I think to it was win the game. And yards, it was, yeah. It was the most numbing feeling I've ever had. Like I, no, There were seven people at my uncle's house watching this game or so. None of us said a word. Like yeah. none of us said a word. We just sat there staring at the screen. Like I'm sitting there looking in my mind, like thinking, "Okay, well he stepped out of bounds on the sideline. Obviously he stepped out of bounds. There like, has he to had be to something." No way yeah. tipped to the sideline, right? Well, obviously you see the replay. He didn't step out of bounds. It was completely legitimate, and literally none of us spoke. We just all went our separate ways and went back home. I don't know if I talked to anybody the rest of the day. I'm pretty sure I turned off social media, didn't log on to Facebook, Twitter, or anything like that, and just went home and probably went to bed, maybe had a maybe had a spirit or two to kind of null it. But uh, yeah. that's easily number one for me. And I had an idea for, for, for Zach's number one now that I can actually stop talking about the kick six and maybe never talk about it again. Um, and I was actually incorrect. So I, I had guessed one that I'm sure he'll probably talk about. I'm guessing it's in his top three, uh, but he had an interesting number one that uh, I'd be fascinated to actually hear about. Yeah, so um, for me, it really goes back to the genesis of loving college football. And I think for most of us, that really falls, you know, like preteens, early teens. So for me, I, I, I went over the moon over the sport when I was 13. It was 1996. And, um, you know, I grew up in Wyoming, moved there when I was five. Like you were saying about Alabama, pretty much the only game in town is Wyoming Cowboys football or Wyoming Cowboys basketball, depending on what time of year it is. Um, So I became a Wyoming Cowboys fan. Um, And that year, 96, was unbelievable. That was Joe Tiller's last season in Laramie before he went to go take over at Purdue. And, you know, they had Josh Walwork at quarterback. They had Marcus Harris, uh, the Bolitnikoff award winner that year, lining up on the flank. Um, You know, Marquise Brigham in the backfield. Great team. Still, like, to this day, they stick there in my mind. Um, David Seraf and... Anyway, I'm not going to go down that line, but you know they got up to I think they were either eight and zero or nine and zero coming into I'm pretty sure it was a Thursday night game. It was early November in '96, and they were up to it was the you know mid teens. They were like 16th or 17th in the nation in the polls, which for Wyoming is a once in a generation experience, really. And it does require becoming, you know, staying undefeated deep into the season to make that happen. So they, you know, they play this, you know, showcase game. It it was definitely an ESPN night game. I'm pretty sure it was a Thursday night, you know, when when the whack ruled that that part of the, the TV schedule and Wyoming lost. They went to San Diego and and lost 28-24. And, I, you know, I don't have a story of being in the house with a lot of other people. It was just, you know, my, my parents were there and my sister. And I think, you know, they were begrudgingly allowing me to watch that game because they knew how much, the, you know, that team had meant to me that year. But that game gets over and I see them lose. 
I go into the bathroom for about 40 minutes, just kind of fill up the sink and like need to just continue dunking my head in water to feel something, you know, because right. like you said, the numbness comes over you as a fan when that happens. And, you know, it's, it, it, you know, very obviously not a, a very similar situation. Wyoming wasn't going to, to play for a national championship that year, no matter what they did. But Sure, but you're at the age at that point, right, that that doesn't even resonate with you. This is oh, like yeah. your initial fanship of a team, yeah, well, and you got to taste what it felt like to have yeah, that. I mean, you know, from. I've been following them the past couple of years, and this is when I was in middle school. And, you know, um, they had newspaper like the the local town daily you know the free daily that they gave out would be there in the school library every day they'd just have a small stack of them and i'd take take them with me to the classroom and like on mondays open it up like what do the polls say this week because this was obviously the you know the days before you could just access the internet in school and get that immediately um but yeah so they that would be it going and getting the jackson hole news and opening it up and where are they in the ap where are they in the coaches this week oh my goodness they're in the teens and yeah then then they they blew the perfect season that game and it you know that i'm gonna be honest i'll just keep going because it leads straight into my second most painful loss which was the inaugural whack championship game that same year um, it was two days after my 14th birthday. We were visiting Salt Lake City for the um, – it, it was like a pre-Christmas uh, trip that the company my dad worked for would would take all the year-round employees on every, every couple of years. So we're there in Salt Lake City, and my parents, all this, my parents and my sister decided to go out. I think they went out to dinner and a movie, and they left me in the hotel room to watch that game alone, probably because of the way they saw I acted a month earlier when, <laughs> when they lost to San Diego State. Um, so I'm in a hotel room alone watching this game, and um, you know they're playing 13-1 BYU or 12 and one BYU. I think they were at the time they ended the season 14 and one after they won the cotton bowl and finished number five that year. So a really good BYU team. Um, and Wyoming takes them to overtime. 96 was the first year that the, the Kansas rules went into place for overtime. So that was a big deal as well. Not only do you have really one of the first three or four conference championship games in existence being played there in at Sam Boyd stadium in Las Vegas. So you got, you know, like a flashy neutral site game and everybody gets to be in sin city and, you know, two really great ranked teams to represent the whack and Wyoming loses that game in overtime. They don't even get selected for a bowl game that season. Oh, wow. A 10-2 and two Wyoming team was sitting at home during the postseason because of that game. So I went from, from – in with those two losses, I went from the high of seeing an undefeated Wyoming team climbing up the poles to – a two walk, you know, a ten win Wyoming team that gets snubbed by every bowl game. Wow, that's unreal. Yeah, that's actually uh, overtime is a good a good segue into my my number two, which was number one. I mean, the kick six always going to be number one, probably for every Alabama fan. But this was number one for a long time because it was one of the first real heartbreakers of my childhood. I believe I was this was in two thousand five, and I was. 
um, 12, I believe, at the time um, of this game. And we were playing, Alabama was playing um, LSU. And pretty, you know, most people probably don't remember, mostly innocuous kind of game. Uh, but I don't think LSU was undefeated. I think they maybe had one loss, but Alabama was undefeated. Mm-hmm. And as as often as that happens now, this was a big deal to me because this was the first really good Alabama team I'd ever seen. Yeah. You know, post Gene Stallings in the 90s, Alabama had kind of fallen into a, a pretty significant <laughs> funk, you know. Right, you know, through the through the uh, Mike DeBoses and Dennis Francione's and, oh, and Mike Price for a, a yeah. couple of months. Um, and then this was peak Mike Shuley year. Oh, uh, yeah. He had, he had struggled in his first couple of years, but he had a really good veteran team. And, I mean, yeah. this was – this was a team. There were several really good pros on it. D'Amico Ryan's uh, very good defense. D'Amico Ryan's right. on defense. Roman Harper on defense. Both of those guys played a decade or so. I think Roman Harper might have just retired a year ago if he's not still going. So really loaded defensive team. Um, and you know, growing up as an Alabama fan, particularly living in Alabama, I had always heard about this the lore of Alabama football, and it had always been kind of bigger than than anything else you know my dad was a huge is a huge Alabama football fan and he had always told me all these old stories about about Alabama about the 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 Bear Bryant teams the the Leroy Mm -hmm. Jordans the Bobby Humphreys the all these uh, Johnny Musos all these great football players legendary Alabama football players um and all these national title teams well I had never seen one and in in being a naive 12 year old I had it in my mind that maybe I'm just never going to get to because you know after 12 years that's it that's all life you get you know if you don't see something by the time you're 12 then you might as well give it up it's all over right dreams died (laughs) so (laughs) Alabama I believe is 9-0 and coming into this game I mean it's been a it's been an excellent season uh but it had started to kind of get away from them after I don't know if you remember Tyrone Prothrow Mm. um who was just a dynamic football player. And he was a huge um, hero of mine as a kid because he grew up in pretty close to my hometown. I had seen him play high school football against my older brother, uh, something my older brother doesn't like to speak about because <laughs> he also didn't have the makings of a varsity athlete. And obviously Tyrone Prothero did. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but Prothero had gotten hurt earlier that season. And one of the greatest games I'd ever seen as a child when Alabama throttled Florida uh, 31 to three kind of showing that they were a really good team that year. Nobody really expected it. Yeah. Um, I believe that was urban Myers first year at Florida too. Um, in Oh five. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. Cause that was right after the, the, win, Utah, the right? win over Pittsburgh. Yeah. That first BCS so, poster. He had broke his leg in that game. And ever since that game, the offense was just struggling. Alabama was winning games 13 to 10. They had beaten Tennessee either the week before or two weeks before. They'd beaten them 6 to 3 in just a classic. Um, (laughs) That was a very defensive struggle. So against LSU, it's, you know, big game, but it's, um, it's tied going into overtime, right? So we're going into overtime. Uh, Alabama gets the ball first and kicks a field goal, and they're up 13-10. to 10. And then LSU drives down from the 25 all the way down inside the 10 or so. And I can't remember specifically if it was Jamarcus Russell or Marcus Randall who was the quarterback at LSU oh. in 05, but he fires a pass into the back of the end zone, just a bullet, I believe, to Dwayne Bowe. I don't want to swear on who the wide receiver was then, but he caught it 
and it sunk in pretty quickly that, oh my God, that's the game. We just lost. Once again, Alabama loses. I'm never, ever going to get to see this national championship team that I always wanted to be able to see. And I mean, I, I believe I cried if I remember oh, right yeah. when I was 12. You know, it was it was a heartbreaker because I thought that was it, you know. And then two weeks later, they played Auburn and got beaten pretty soundly in the Iron Bowl for what was the fourth or fifth straight year at that point. So it was just all falling apart. And that was that was tough to swallow, and it hadn't been surpassed until, until the Iron Bowl of 2013. I completely understand. No, and that, you know, that really speaks to the fact that a lot of these, um, you know, really painful losses come when they, you know, real stakes are on the line. I think that's a really big thing that 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 translates no matter who you're a fan of and where you're located around the country. You know, we we see that for a 13-year-old kid in Wyoming and a 12-year-old kid in Alabama and and pretty much, you know, you could pick stories like this from any other region of the United States. Um, but yeah, um, getting to the last uh, one of these most painful losses for me, just to keep it moving because I don't want to linger on the, the other painful ones. <laughs> um <laughs> It's the one that you actually alluded to at the beginning, the one that you had um, originally thought would probably be number one on my list and a really great choice because it certainly falls in that top three. It's the 2011 BCS National Championship game. And as somebody who, um, you know, like I grew up rooting for Wisconsin because that's where my family was from. And I grew up rooting for Wyoming having grown up there. But my alma mater is Oregon. Um, before I even went to school there, I spent six years working on that campus. And um, the dog, the Ducks, you know, they're they're at this point my team. They're my team. And so watching Oregon, you know, little Oregon, Nouveau Riche, Oregon, go to the BCS National Championship game – total mind blower. It would have never dreamed of that happening when I first moved to, to um, Eugene in, in 2006, you know, that year was the year that um, Gary Croton was the offensive coordinator for the last year. Um, you know, Dennis Dixon was a nobody. And then the next year, that second year I'm living in Eugene, Chip Kelly comes on board. Dennis Dixon becomes Let's face it, Dennis Dixon was absolute star power that season. He was on fire, and then, you know, out goes his knee, and the next thing you know, Oregon is going from playing for a national championship to playing in the Sun Bowl and watching, you know, Cody Kemp throw the ball and Justin Roper throw the ball. So... Um, oh, good old El Paso, Texas. Who exactly. doesn't want to go there for their bowl game? <laughs> Which is strange because, you know, it's one of those original bowl games. It really makes you wonder. Like, but that's, you know, neither here nor there because 
That's not the most painful loss. That most painful loss is a couple years later when Oregon finally, you know, builds up into this juggernaut under Chip Kelly, first when he was the offensive coordinator under Mike Bellotti, and then, you know, he takes over the job, and he gets them to the national championship game, and it just feels inevitable at that point. You know, you've got Darren Thomas firing, you've got LaMichael James playing. Those teams were incredible. Um, they actually had a defense that was, you know, in, oh, yeah. in, in Pac-12 terms, was worth a damn. <laughs> you know, well, they, they proved that in the national title game yeah. that year. The defense was was legit. Yeah, I mean, they were holding, you know, they're holding Auburn to field goals, and then Michael Dyer apparently doesn't get tackled. Yeah, he was down. He was down. He was so down on the ground. <laughs> to um, be to be perfectly fair, we are on the same side with this because I was very much so rooting for Oregon in that national yeah, championship. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a Tide fan, I I think there was a lot. It, it, it might be the only time when those interests actually aligned because most of the time during that era it was we want Bama. We finally want to play Bama because those two teams were like ships passing in the night that never actually got their time to meet up when they were in that absolute prime. You know, it's one Which of is those. a shame, man, because I always wanted to see that game. I oh, thought yeah. specifically when Chip Kelly was there. And maybe maybe down the line, you know, Mario Cristobal's got a good connection with, with Nick Saban having worked on his staff recently. So I mean, it could be something down the line that maybe a potential home and home gets worked out. I think that would be awesome. It would be tons of fun to see. And you know, like we're never gonna get that era back again. That that was just the sweet spot that never happened. And I think it's something that a lot of fans around college football would have loved to see. But, you know, they weren't playing Bama in that game, they were playing Auburn. And Michael Dyer doesn't get called down. They get themselves into position. You know, another circumstance like we were talking about earlier, where a game is really tight, it's going in it, it it's due to go into overtime. Um, but because Dyer isn't called down because they say that play is still alive and, you know, Oregon's players all assumed the play was done and Dyer knew there was no whistle yet. Here we are. And I'm talking about a 22, 19 loss that still guts me nearly a decade later. <laughs> no, of course it, it absolutely would. And I, it's funny because, my number three on the list, I believe, came during that same season, uh, during the 2010 Iron Bowl, that was the game that elevated Auburn to that national. They still had to play in the SEC championship game yeah. and, and win. I think they played South Carolina in the SEC title game that year when Steve Spurrier was the head coach. So the Iron Bowl of 2010 ripped my heart to shreds as well. And there's been several of those close games that I could probably comment on, you know, the the 2016 college football playoff national title game, Alabama Clemson, when Deshaun Watson mm-hmm. hit Hunter Renfro with one second on the clock. Yeah. But you know, it's kind of, I guess I'm to the point now that those losses don't hurt as bad anymore because I'm, you know, a little bit older now and it's just, I've kind of accepted it. And plus, being an Alabama fan, I feel like a spoiled brat every time I complain about a singular loss. You know what I mean? Because, well, you know, they've had it pretty well. Well, age gives you, you perspective and success gives you perspective as well. You know, sure. you under you understand that the highest highs don't, you know, don't really play out without having some of those lows at least. 
You know, it's funny because a, a former tailgater uh, colleague of ours, Matt uh, Strobel, Strobel, however you pronounce his last name. Uh, sorry, Matt, if you're listening. Um, he, he and I have talked about it during the last college football season. He's a huge Ohio State fan, as you know, mm-hmm. and we had talked about – you know, I just kind of miss mediocrity sometimes. Like, I wouldn't mind watching a six and six season. That's I'm not having to worry about one loss dominating the headlines. Alabama lost to Clemson in a blowout in the title game two months ago, and since then everybody's been talking about, well, Alabama's done. You know, that, the dynasty is dead. Like, I, just let me get back to some semblance of normalcy. Can we go eight and four or something like that? You know, I've long said that when Saban retires, I hope we hire Lane Kiffin just because it would be fun and we'd probably lose a few games every year, but at least we'd have fun doing it. But anyway, that was apropos of really nothing. So my number three was the 2010 Iron Bowl as Alabama jumps out. They'd already lost two games that year. They weren't in the national title hunt. They weren't in the SEC championship hunt. Auburn had already clinched the West. They were undefeated. Another touched by Angels charmed Auburn season, by the way. It just seemed like every bounce yeah. was going to go their way, and that continued um, in, in Glendale for the national title game that year against Oregon. Um, and um, Alabama jumps out, I believe, 24 to nothing in that game. I mean, we just came out. Alabama was demonstrably the better team as they've been in that oh, game. Yeah. Julio out. Jones had a 70-plus yard touchdown where Auburn's DBs just fell asleep and didn't cover arguably the best receiver in college football as he ran down the field. And, I mean, Alabama was just all over Auburn. Cam Newton can't get anything done. We're just rolling, rolling, rolling. And then it all just kind of started to unravel. At one point, Mark Ingram's running down the sideline uh, for what looks like a touchdown. He gets hit from behind. The ball hits the sideline rolls perfectly for about 15 yards out of the back of the end zone. You think at any moment it's going to roll out of bounds and be Alabama's ball out of the back end zone for a touchback. Um, Trent Richardson drops a wide-open touchdown uh, right before halftime, leads to a field goal, uh, and it just all came apart. And you could the worst thing about those kind of losses is when you can see them coming. And it was 27 to 14. Auburn scores again is 27 to 21. I'm thinking, oh my God, we're going to lose by one. Like this is what's about to yeah. happen. We're about to lose by a single freaking point. And then, and then Cam leads another great drive. And credit to him, he was a spec. Still is a great football player. Was a spectacular college football player. And that was one of the the better individual seasons I've ever seen. As much as it pains me to have to say it, it, it absolutely was. And that was kind of his crowning achievement that year was that come from behind, you know, they're down 24 to nothing. Looks like they're going down and, you know, they might've still ended up in the title game or they still probably would have won the sec, but you know, he throws that touchdown. Greg McElroy gets hurt. So young little known red shirt freshman, AJ McCarron comes in at the end of the game. Can't complete a pass. Uh, He ended up doing pretty okay for himself though, but that was, that was tough to swallow as well. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much done lingering over these losses for the week. Uh, yeah, that would be this would be something though uh, for everybody listening. Would love to hear your story um, about it. So uh, each of us are, are good to interact with on Twitter. I'm at JL Mitchell ninety three, and Zach, yours is. Uh, yeah, you can catch me at Z Bagalki at um, on Twitter. Just yeah, for- talk to either of us about it. Would love to hear yours. I know you got great stories. I mean, I oh, yeah. I learned something new. Zach was able to guess my number one because it's so. Uh, nationally relevant but his was a a fascinating story i'd never heard so i I love hearing stuff like that because it's the deep fan in all of us and it's and those losses just like like we said before just linger and linger and you never really get over them you really don't 
Awesome. Well, everybody, we'll be back again next Wednesday um, for another Saturday Blitz podcast. Until then, um, I'm Zach Bagalki, and I was here with John Mitchell today. We'll be talking to you again soon. Have a great day.